If you take your Bibles, you can turn along with me to Psalm 40. That's where we'll focus our attention this morning, Psalm 40. I don't know if you've noticed, but the world we live in is pretty messed up. Anybody else notice that? Now that you say it, yeah, yeah. Sin, disease, death, oppression, crime, war, hunger, Safe to say, things are not the way they ought to be. And add to this the fact that persecution of Christians worldwide is on the rise. The world is a broken place. We know that's true of the world, and if we're honest, we know it's also true of ourselves. We struggle with sin in our own life, yielding to temptation far more than any of us would like to admit. The brokenness begins at home. This world we live in is not a paradise. In such a fallen and broken world, I don't think I have to convince you that we are living many, many miles east of Eden. And a vast distance south of heaven. So what then is our calling as Christians living in such a messed up world with the shattered effects of the fall all around us? What is our calling? What are we to do? Well, David in Psalm 40 helps us to see our calling as Christians In the midst of a broken world. Let me read for you Psalm 40. Psalm 40. I'll read all 17 verses. David writes. I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction. Out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock. Making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. 
I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs on my head. And my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. This is the word of God. And let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Revealing to us the reality of the world we live in. Revealing to us the reality of the sin that lives within us. And yet, exceeding all of this is the reality that you are in control, that you are good and merciful, and that you have shown your grace to us by delivering us from destruction. May our heart's cry be, in response to that, the Lord be magnified. May we find our joy and gladness in you. And may that joy and gladness transcend every human circumstance we encounter on this broken and fallen planet. Teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. David writes this psalm as a psalm of thanksgiving and praise for God's past deliverance from destruction. Verses 1 through 3. He writes it as a lament over his present troubles and his persistent sins, as verse 12 makes clear, and as a plea for the Lord's speedy deliverance from present dangers, as verses 13 and 17 make clear. I want to begin our study of this psalm by looking at the end of it. Verse 16. Let me read that again. Verse 16. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. To magnify the Lord is to consider him to be great. And it is to ascribe greatness to his name. To magnify the Lord is to think about the Lord's greatness. And to declare this greatness to all who will listen. It is to invite and encourage others to join you in magnifying the Lord. This call to magnify the Lord 
is one that is repeated in the Psalms. Psalm 34, 3 says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. Psalm 69, 30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. Now, in verses 9 and 10 of this psalm, David sketches out for us a bit more of what magnifying the Lord looks like. Look with me there. Verses 9 and 10. Magnifying the Lord here. Verse 9. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. David has shared with others what he himself has come to know deeply. And that is of the goodness and faithfulness and righteousness and loving kindness of the Lord. To know that And express that is to magnify the Lord. It is to make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to herald His goodness. It is to speak of His gospel. It is to tell of His kindness and mercy to us. That is what the psalmist, David, is calling for us to do. That is what he himself did. Verse 9 says, I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. This is the Old Testament equivalent to proclaiming the gospel that we read of in the New Testament. We know that the New Testament word gospel means good news. And here we have David proclaiming glad tidings or good news of righteousness in the great congregation. How is righteousness good news? Especially if we are sinners. Sinners with too many sins to count in the language of David. How is this good news? Well, it's not. But for the righteousness of the, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for the righteousness of a loving father who sent his son Jesus to die in our place. This is the good news. The righteousness of God in providing forgiveness for sinners through His love, grace, and mercy in the gift of His Son, Jesus. God showed His grace and mercy to us in Jesus Christ who established and proved both God's justice and mercy by dying as a substitute for sinners like us. This is what it means to magnify the Lord. It is to rehearse and retell and proclaim and herald the good news of glad tidings of God's faithfulness and salvation. That, in short, is our calling in a fallen world, in a broken world, that knows too much sorrow, that has too many burdens that is weary under the load it bears to declare good news of glad tidings for all people. That the Lord Jesus has come to remove your burdens, 
to deliver you from destruction and to give you a song in your heart. That is the message we have been called to proclaim. So we're going to see in this psalm this morning five reasons to magnify the Lord. Five reasons to magnify the Lord. Maybe you're saying, yeah, I agree with you, all that you've said about what a messed up world we live in. But maybe you're struggling to give expression to the goodness of the Lord in the midst of that brokenness. Well, the psalmist gives us five reasons to magnify the Lord. The first reason is Yahweh hears our cries and he responds with deliverance. Verses 1 through 3. Yahweh hears our cries and he responds with deliverance. Just like Psalm 93 that we studied last week, David here in Psalm 40 addressed God by his personal covenant name, Yahweh. Remember we talked about that last week, Yahweh. Which should remind us in the midst of all this brokenness around us that God is not some distant, cold, disinterested deity. He is rather a God who has initiated reconciliation with sinners and rebels as our covenant God. And his care for us is constant. And he proved that to us by sending his own son to die for us. God loves you. We we read it, John 3.16. God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that through his son, the world might have life. This is who God is. This is our covenant God. And it's because Yahweh is our covenant God that we know that he hears us when we cry out to him for help. He's not standing back and saying, oh, got yourself in a pickle this time, didn't you? Yeah, I wonder, wonder how you're going to get out of this one. Not at all. He's moved with compassion. He hears our prayers and hears our cries. And he turns to us in love and grants us deliverance. David says in verse 1 that he waited patiently for the Lord. This reminds us that the Lord's deliverance is not always immediate. The Lord's deliverance often involves patiently waiting on Him. We don't know His timing. We don't know all that the Lord is doing. But we do understand that His timing is perfect. That His ways are not our ways. And that in our waiting, we realize that God is still active. He is acting In the midst of our waiting, we may not see it, we may not sense it, but God is active in our waiting. He is strengthening us, He is growing us, He is humbling us, He is stretching us. David waited patiently, and part of that patient waiting was crying out to God in prayer for help and deliverance. Yes, you can wait patiently while you cry out for help. Those are not mutually exclusive. 
We know that because it says the Lord inclined to him and heard his prayer, heard his cry. And the Lord responded in his time with deliverance. Look how David describes his deliverance in verses 2 and 3. It's very graphic. It's a clear picture of of God's deliverance. Verse 2, he brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now, we don't know the nature of the difficulty and the danger that David faced. Was it a personal danger? Was it a personal difficulty? Was it some national-sized and scaled difficulty that David faced as king over Israel? We're not told. And really, that's a blessing that we don't know the historical situation because it makes it divinely applicable to every difficulty and distress that we might face. It leaves the psalm general enough to apply to a host of different circumstances. When we cry out to the Lord, we can be assured that He hears us. And He will deliver us. Notice the description in vivid terms here. David was in a pit of destruction. He was hopeless. He was helpless. And in this pit, as if the pit weren't bad enough, it's a pit of destruction. In this pit, there's miry clay. Have you ever been walking through a a muddy or mucky field and you sink deeply into the mud, so deeply you can't get your foot out? Or maybe you can get your foot out, but you're going to leave your shoe behind, right? That's the picture here. Where you're immobilized. You're in the pit of destruction and there's no solid footing. There's no way to get out. Hopeless. Utter hopelessness. But the Lord responds and delivers David from the pit of destruction and the miry clay and he sets his feet on a rock making his footsteps firm. David's situation is totally reversed. His situation is totally changed. David has gone from the darkness of hopeless despair and certain destruction to the hope-restoring, firm footing of solid ground. The fact that David's hopes have been restored is seen in verse 3, where he says, He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. David has a new song, a song of praise to the Lord, and he's not ashamed to sing it. Many will see and fear and trust in the Lord as a result of the deliverance the Lord has worked in my life. Well, the Lord is to be magnified because he sees our plight. He hears our cries and he responds with solid deliverance. And of course, the greatest instance and example of this deliverance in our lives is, of course, the deliverance from 
the guilt of our sin and the deliverance from God's wrath, God's wrath that our sins so justly deserved. We were in the pit of destruction. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were mired in sin and guilt, and our destruction was sure. But the Lord delivered us. He brought us out of the pit and set our feet upon a rock, giving us firm spiritual footing. This deliverance came through Jesus Christ, God's Son. His death, burial, and resurrection. His substitutionary, sacrificial death on the cross for you and for me. That is how God secured our deliverance. By giving His own Son. He didn't sit removed and simply through His powers of deity cause us to be raised out of the pit. Rather, He sent His Son into the pit as our substitute. Jesus died for us, but He rose again, securing not only His own victory, but ours as well through faith in Him. So we've been delivered. We've been set on solid spiritual ground. And we have solid spiritual footing. And that is never to be reversed. Once you've been delivered out of the pit of spiritual destruction, you'll never face it again. Anybody happy about that? Is that a reason for a song in your heart? In the midst of a broken world? Yes, it is. So that's the first reason. The Lord hears our cries. Maybe you're going through something else. You're crying out to the Lord. You're looking for deliverance, but it's not coming. Wait patiently for the Lord. Continue to cry out to Him. Know that He has delivered you from your greatest spiritual threat. And it's not just a spiritual threat. Your greatest threat, right? His own judgment against your sin. He's already given you his best in his son Jesus. He'll be faithful. He'll uphold you until his deliverance comes. Second reason to magnify the Lord. Yahweh's wonders are too numerous to count and his plans are too great to comprehend. Verses 4 and 5. You see, it's not just our salvation that makes Yahweh worthy of being magnified. That would alone be enough, right? In fact, there are too many reasons to count why the Lord should be magnified. We've gone from being doomed in the pit of destruction to being blessed. Look at verse 4. How blessed is the man who's made the Lord his trust. If you're a Christian here this morning, you are blessed. Divinely blessed. That word blessed is packed with biblical significance. It means that the Lord's favor rests on you. You may not feel it, you may not sense it, but it's true. 
I love that about the Psalms. They're so real. They, they don't present some kind of varnished and shellacked version of Christianity, of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. They present it in all of its stark contrasts and its difficulties and its struggles. And we do struggle. But in the midst of the struggle, know that you are blessed of God. That you've gone from the pit of destruction. That your feet are set on solid ground. And nothing and no one can ever change that. How blessed is the man who's made the Lord his trust. And has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Count your blessings. Name them one by one. We have a tendency to allow the difficulties of life to eclipse the blessings. Verse 5, the wonders that God has done are the miracles God has performed. And the many, many acts of deliverance He has done for His people. Not to mention all the small acts of mercy and kindness and provision that God has provided. In addition to this, David mentioned that the Lord's thoughts toward us are numerous, too numerous to count. What are the Lord's thoughts toward us? Well, these are his plans for us. God's plans for us are perfect. Did you know God has a plan for your life? He does, Christian. A wonderful plan. A plan of blessing. A plan of glory. A plan of victory. And his plans for us are perfect. And yes, his plans include suffering. His plans include trials. But that's all part of his good and perfect plan that ultimately results in glory. Shared glory with his own son, Jesus Christ. Unfathomable. His plans for us are perfect. Jeremiah 29, 11. You know that verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity to give you a future and a hope. Now some of you are going, up, 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 up. Wait a minute. That's in the context of Israel. So, yes, it is. This verse applies directly and primarily to Israel while it sat in exile And it referred primarily to God's plan to restore Israel to the promised land. It, however, I believe, has an indirect and secondary application for us. God knows the plan that he has for us too. Are you saying God doesn't know the plan he has for us? I don't understand this. Plans for our welfare and not for our calamity. Why? He's already rescued us out of the pit of destruction, right? He set our foot on solid ground. Of course he has plans for us, for our welfare, and not for our calamity. To give us a future and a hope. Because he put a new song in our hearts. A song of praise to our God. 
Now, how do I know that Jeremiah 29, 11 has a secondary application to us as Christians? Well, the New Testament declares it to be so. Right? We know these things as they were true for Israel, they're true for us as well. In a secondary way, Romans 8, 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Who did not, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Sounds like some good plans. Sounds like not calamity, but blessing. Sounds like a future and a hope. 2 Corinthians 9.8, I love this. <laughs> Paul just piles up this inclusive language of God's provision and care of his thoughts toward us, of his care for us. 2 Corinthians 9.8, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now that's a great promise. That's a God who has thoughts toward us that are too numerous to count. Whatever you face, God's grace will be greater. Believe that? Whatever you go through, whatever suffering or trial, whatever this broken world throws at you, God's grace will be greater. And abundantly so. And all of this taken together makes the Lord incomparable. There is no one like the Lord. As David says, there is none to compare with you. He's worthy of our praise. And yet his worthiness of praise still exceeds our ability to express our praise. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. We'd lose track. We don't have the mental capability. We don't have the memory. We don't have the spiritual insight and skill to identify all the ways, the myriad ways that God has blessed us. And delivered us, and cares for us, and protects us, and keeps us secure in Him. Too numerous to count. The Lord is to be magnified because His goodness and kindness toward us is too great to count or measure. A third reason to magnify the Lord. And that's because Yahweh delights not in religious ritual, but in heart-level submission. Which is relationship. Verses 6 through 8. Sacrifice and meal offering you've not desired. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. David knows that he not only lives in a sinful world, but that he too is still one who struggles with sin. As is the case for every believer. And yet, what is it that the Lord wants from him? 
in the midst of his own struggle with sin. What does the Lord want? Not sacrifice. Not outward ritual. Not primarily meal offerings or burnt offerings or sin offerings. So what does God really want? He wants us. He wants heart level submission. David says, my ears you have opened. David had his spiritual ears open through the conviction of sin. Of sin. And David responds with, behold, I come. That is the response of submission. I'm here, Lord. Like Isaiah. Having been convicted of his own sin and the sin of the people around him. And having had his sins purged by the Lord's righteous and merciful sacrifice. Isaiah responds, here am I, Lord, send me. Behold, I come. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David represents here an imperfect but submitted believer. Submitted at the heart level. Not focused merely on outward displays of religion or remorse. But one who is submitted from the heart. One who knows his rightful place in the economy of God. As this was true of David, and as it's true of every Christian imperfectly, the author of Hebrews quotes this verse and applies it to Jesus, who perfectly delighted to do the Lord's will and did it incessantly, proving he was the Son of God and making it possible for Jesus to serve as a sinless substitute for you and I. See, the Lord isn't primarily interested in sacrifices or acts of service or money donated or other outward acts of religious zeal. He primarily wants our hearts. Heart-level devotion is what he's interested in. He is not a capricious God who stands waiting for sacrifices to be made so that crops aren't destroyed or villages plundered. He is a God who rather stands ready to reconcile sinful rebels to himself when they by faith receive the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 12.1 Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's what God wants. He wants us. Not our acts of devotion, 
but our hearts. He wants to relate to us. He is a personal God. That's why he has established a personal covenant name, Yahweh. And he has secured the benefits of that personal covenant through his own personal gift to us of his son. That's reason to magnify his name. Fourth reason, Yahweh is greater than all our enemies, including those that are without and those that are within. Verses 11 through 15. Verse 11 is a great statement of faith and confidence in the Lord in the face of a great threat. Verse 11, you, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. What a statement of confidence and trust in the Lord. And it stands out all the more when we see the true nature of the threat that David was facing in verse 12. Evils beyond number have surrounded me. He feels surrounded by evils beyond number. There's a lot of stuff in this psalm that can't be counted. (laughs) And evil is one of them. I'm surrounded, he says. And what are the nature of these enemies? Notice that the threats come both from within and without. I'm overtaken by my own iniquities. So that I'm not able to see. David says, I can see my sins and my failures. So much so that it's sometimes hard for me to see anything else. Ever feel like that? My sins are more numerous than the hairs on my head. Some of you are pretty holy. When he looks at himself and his sin, he's discouraged. He loses heart. He knows that the solution, the deliverance, is not to be found by looking within. That's what our culture tells us to do. Look within. Celebrate your identity. Be who you are. You do you. That's not the answer. That brings us to to further destruction. That leads us to being bogged down in the mire again. That's not the place to go. David knows that the solution of his problems is not to be found within his own strength. David knows he has met the enemy and that the enemy is David. And we know that too about ourselves, don't we? Verses 13 through 15 describe the enemies that are from without. Not only has David identified this enemy within, he he has real enemies without, personal enemies, national enemies. And all were real threats to David's life and his well-being and the well-being of the nation. And over these enemies, David prays for God's justice to be done. He prays that malicious people would be put to shame for their evil acts. But what stands over all of it is verse 11. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. 
Your loving kindness, God's covenant loyal love, and your truth will continually preserve me. There's hope. Even in the midst of enemies within and enemies without is because the Lord's faithfulness is greater than all the enemies combined. And that's cause for praise and reason to magnify the Lord. Finally, fifthly, we should magnify the Lord because he is the source of our gladness and joy. Verses 16 and 17. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in your circumstances. Is that what it says? Help me out here. In you. Not in your circumstances, in you. Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. That's the key. To joy and gladness, is it not? It is. Our joy and gladness are rooted and grounded in the Lord and His faithful covenant love. In His promises. You see, the Christian's joy and gladness is never fundamentally situational. Christian joy and gladness are never dependent upon our circumstances but rather find their true source in the Lord and the deliverance from sin and guilt that he has secured for us. You see, we as Christians are never to get beyond verses 2 and 3, that he brought us up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay, and he set our feet upon a rock and gave us firm footing to fight the spiritual battle. Our joy and gladness are rooted in the Lord and because the Lord never changes and because the Lord is always with us and will never abandon us because his promises are always true, because he is righteous and truth, joy and gladness never need leave. They can be as constant as he is. Habakkuk 3, you know this passage, 17 and 18. What a, what a promise. Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. O Lord, make it so of us. O Lord, make it true of us. That's a little hard for us to relate to, you know, talking about olives and lambs and stuff like that. If the containers never make their way into port, And the Christmas gifts I ordered on Amazon never show up. If there's a worldwide or even a local and geographical shortage of food. And I begin to miss meals and my family misses meals. Now we're getting there. 
What? Still, I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. When your worst case scenario comes true and comes to be, there is still cause for joy and gladness in the Lord. And this expression of true joy and gladness that isn't dependent on circumstance but is rooted and grounded in the Lord and his faithfulness and his character and his covenant is seen in the expression of praise. The Lord be magnified. Let those who love your salvation say continually, the Lord be magnified. You ready to participate? Let's say it together. The Lord be magnified. Let those who love your salvation Say continually, the Lord be magnified. See, this psalm ends right where David needs to be and right where we all need to be. With a new awareness, a fresh awareness of his own weakness, his own sins, and a new sense of his need of the Lord's help and strength and deliverance. It ends with him expressing this in prayerful dependence that the Lord would be mindful of him in verse 17. Since I'm afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. It ends with a confession that the Lord is his help. The Lord is his deliverer. Along with a a cry for timely deliverance. Lord, act now. Don't wait. Send your help now. Beloved, at the end of the day, that's where we need to be too. In the midst of all the brokenness around us and the brokenness within us. To be aware of our own frailty and sin and helplessness. Aware of the dangers that are around us and within us. And moved to bring our needs to the Lord in humble trust and dependence. With renewed joy and purpose in life that expresses itself in one simple phrase. The Lord be magnified. Let's pray together. Lord, this is the great purpose for which we are all here. That you would be magnified. To glorify God and enjoy you forever. That is our chief end. Always has been, always will be. Forgive us for getting sidetracked from that. Forgive us for thinking that our chief end was to be entertained, to be comfortable, to have no financial concerns, to be healthy and fit. These things are in and of themselves good gifts, but they are unworthy of a a life's aim. It's not the reason for which we were created. We were given life and breath and all things 
and yes, your son. That our lives might glorify you and that we might say continually in every circumstance and every situation, the Lord be magnified. Make it so in our hearts. Make it so in our lives. Lord, your wonders and thoughts toward us are too numerous to count. And though our sins, they are many, your mercy is more. And we're so grateful for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus' name. Amen.